You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Acts 9, verses 1 through 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is chosen, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we are thankful that you have spoken to us in your word. We pray now that you would continue to speak, that we would be made into the likeness of Christ, that you would fill us and that you would build your church for your own glory and for our own good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'd I'd love to after. Uh, Another crazy week. It is seemingly impossible to keep up with the events of the day, much less the week, Uh, but we will trust in the sufficiency of God's Word as a trustworthy guide to life, as well as the providence of God to give us the Word that we need each week. Uh, This is why we preach through books of the Bible, to do, as one pastor says, uh, to structure our preaching time, to structure the way that we go about sermons and then sit under the preaching of God's word to say what God said, how he said it, and for his purposes. And so I'm so glad that you all don't desire 
for me uh, or for this pulpit role to be like a running commentary on politics or culture. In fact, you demand that it isn't. So I'm thankful for that. I'm so glad that I don't have to come up with like some new spiritual TED talk uh, to inspire you each week, uh, but that we trust in God to speak, that he has given us his word that is wise for eternity, that we need it uh, to feed us, to sustain us, to nourish us, and to accomplish God's purposes. So let's listen together. Uh, Well, unlike any or many other books or many other genres of the Bible, the book of Acts still, like many other books and genres of the Bible, is, well, still, it is a narrative. It is a story. And the best stories, just like this one, always have dynamic characters. Dynamic meaning that the, the characters experience some kind of change. In a, if you take in a literature or like a creative writing class, you'll learn that dynamic characters are always more interesting than static characters, those that stay the, st- the same. The stories of dynamic characters are inspiring when they change from like evil, they change from selfishness or self-centeredness to being kind or selfless or others focused. We, we mentioned Ebenezer Scrooge just a few weeks ago, similar to like Mr. Darcy from Pride and Prejudice or his animated equivalent of, equivalent of the Beast from Beauty and the Beast. Woody, Woody the Cowboy, Mike Wazowski, basically every Pixar character. Uh, if they are a good character, they experience some sort of profound change. Even the crowds, as Rocky tells the Russians, if I can change and you can change, we can all change. And it's great and we all have teary eyes. Well, the entire story of the Bible is that of change. And it has to be a story of change because it starts with the story of creation, the story of that of the beautiful and the good that then quickly moves into a story of fall, the story of selfishness and rebellion and the bad. But then it moves towards a story of redemption, that of change, of reversal, of forgiveness, that of recreation. And there's maybe no clearer microcosm in the entire story of the Bible than this specific story of Saul on the road to Damascus in Acts 9 that you heard Patrick read. In Acts 9, we're going to see that Saul is walking in one geographic direction. And we're going to see that even though he will continue to walk in that same geographic direction, his encounter on the road will completely alter, in fact, will completely reverse the trajectory of his entire life. So we're going to think about reversal tonight. We're going to think about transformation and dynamic change. And so the first half of this sermon, we're going to think through all of that under the heading of the reversal of Saul. The reversal of Saul. But secondly, there's even a reversal in the second half of the part that you heard Patrick read. A less dramatic, but still very significant reversal. And that of the reversal of Ananias. So the reversal of Saul and the reversal of Ananias. So first of all, let's think about this character, Saul. In our TV series of Acts that we've been thinking through, perhaps the chronology has jumped around a little bit in time and location. Maybe not, but while the events of Acts 9 could totally chronologically follow the events of Acts 8, it's also possible that we're now jumping back in time. In chapter 9, back in time before Philip's preaching in Samaria and on the desert road with the Ethiopian in chapter 8. Either way, we are definitely now flying back in space over back to Jerusalem, where we find the guy that was just briefly introduced at the end of chapter 7 and at the beginning of chapter 8. This guy named Saul. 
Saul, who held the jackets of the people who stoned Stephen, the guy who approved of the execution, and then began persecuting, began ravaging the church, pulling men and women from their homes. Saul is the weed eater that gets put down into the gravel and then just throws out, violently throws out the church. And it is to this Saul that we now return in chapter 9. We find him in verse 1, almost described like a snorting, snotting horse who is in the gates ready to just burst out, to smash the competition and to do the job. So we read in verse 1 of chapter 9, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, before we get to the bulk of this text, who is Saul? Who is this guy? Well, spoiler, if you're new to the Bible, he's going to be a very important figure to the development of the rest of, to the, to the building of the church. He, in fact, has written very much of the New Testament, many of these letters that you might or might not be familiar with. This is the guy that's going to write them, but who is he now? We're going to find out in, uh, later in the chapter that he was born in Tarsus, which is southern, modern-day southern Turkey. So he was born into the Greek world, but Saul wasn't Greek. In Philippians 3, he tells us that he was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. Saul will will later explain in Acts 22 that he was actually brought up in Jerusalem, though. Maybe because Maybe because his Benjaminite, uh, Benjaminite, that's a word, right? Benjaminite family, maybe they were already Pharisees, and so they were really concerned that Israel was becoming more and more Greek, and they wanted God's people to obey the law and worship God in purity, so maybe they all decided to move back to Jerusalem. Or maybe they moved back to Jerusalem, where Saul would, in Acts 22, tell us that he began to learn at the feet of a famous Pharisee rabbi named Gamaliel, the Pharisee that we met in Acts 5, who was urging uh, the temple, the urging restraint against the followers of Jesus. Maybe Saul's family weren't Pharisees. But after getting to Jerusalem, this young Saul came to learn under this guy, began to learn under the Pharisees, and he just bought it entirely. He bought the entire worldview, that of teaching and keeping the law of Moses and protecting Israel from the corruption of the world became now his entire life. By now, though, here we are in Acts 9, it looks like Saul had broken from his former teacher, Gamaliel, because he is in an all-out blind rage against this new movement. He does not want any of this patience and restraint that his former teacher was urging. And yet, Saul likely doesn't think that he was doing anything wrong. We might look back and say, of course, this guy is like um, in a murderous rage. Of course, he is just in flat-out sin and rebellion against God. But in his mind, these people of the way, what a great uh, way to describe uh, Christianity, directly picking up on what Jesus calls himself as the way, the truth, and the life. These people are blasphemers. If these people are saying that a disgraced and crucified by the Romans homeless guy is the way to know God, then in Saul's mind, they are overthrowing millennia of right understanding, of right teaching, of right tradition. And now God wants us, God wants me, Saul is thinking, 
to stop them by whatever means necessary. And so he goes to the high priest and he gets letters for permission to go to the synagogues in Damascus, which is modern-day Syria, 200 miles to the north. And apparently, he had gotten uh, news that the way was spreading up there too, and he needed to stop it. He was going to get up there, and he's going to find all of these new Christians, these people of the way, and he's going to haul them back to Jerusalem, the place of God's presence, where they might be publicly humiliated for their misdeeds, perhaps even executed for blasphemy and false worship. So Saul sets out with letters on his very first missionary journey on the road to Damascus. Now again, I think we can tend toward thinking about Saul, and actually many others like Saul perhaps, as hating God and then coming to a place of loving God. While that's theologically true, Saul really thought that he was loving God. He thought he was doing what was right. He thought he was doing what God wanted him to do. While it's completely speculative, N.T. Wright has written in many places about what he thinks Saul on this road to Damascus might have been thinking about. Uh, What's not speculative is that there was a form of Jewish meditation that had become popular in these days, uh, especially among certain circles of Pharisees. And the point of this kind of meditation that certain Pharisees of this day would uh, do, the point was to get a clear vision of God, like Isaiah or Ezekiel did. So these Pharisees would use, namely, a text like Ezekiel 1. In Ezekiel 1, uh, we see this really weird scene, uh, what some people call the Godmobile. It's a very weird thing. There's like this uh, chariot thing that has wings and like these angelic creatures and it's like spinning lights and there's like rims on the wheels that are like flashing and it's, 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 it's really crazy. There are four-faced angels that are really creepy. Imagine if you would see them. The wheels have eyes. It's really weird. But then, near the end of Ezekiel 1, as Ezekiel is describing this Godmobile of flashing lights and four-faced angels, a voice comes from above. And we read this in Ezekiel 1. And above the expanse over their heads, these four-faced angels, there was the likeness of a throne, and an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud of, on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. And so many Jews, many Pharisees of the day, would use this text to slowly, slowly meditate, to allow their imaginations to then enter the theological space of Ezekiel, to see God to hear God. Now back to the speculation. Maybe Saul is doing this kind of meditating, which would be a really good time to do this kind of meditating, wouldn't it be? On a slow, plodding horse ride up a dusty road. In his mind, in his thoughts, in his worship, he is slowly working his imagination up from the wheels to the bottom of the chariot to angelic creatures and wings and then sapphire and then a rainbow, and then fire, and flame, and throne, and then there appears someone like a man, 
the glory of the Lord, and Saul might be thinking, this just got a little bit more real than it usually does. And this time, there, there, there's an actual face, a blindingly bright face. And hold up, is the face actually going to speak? And the face speaks, and it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's likely floored at this point if he has been doing this kind of meditation. But this has never happened before. The, the voice of the Lord has never spoken this clearly, much less called him by name. And Saul responds with, who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And in five seconds, Saul's entire world is turned upside down. He realizes that Jesus of Nazareth, the the carpenter from the north, the homeless rabbi that Saul maybe had even heard preach, perhaps even had had a hand in delivering over to the Romans, that Jesus is now resurrected from the dead. Like so many people of the way that he had been persecuting had been claiming to be true about him. He is also the Lord of glory. And so he's thinking, what I thought was blasphemy, what I thought that I was doing what God wanted me to do was actually not blasphemy, but was true, was reality. That Jesus is Israel's king, that he is the Messiah, the anointed one of God, who would come to defeat God's enemies, to forgive sin, to conquer evil. And wait a minute, if Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one of God, God's set-apart king, then maybe that actually makes me like my Benjaminite ancestor, the one whom I was named after. Maybe that makes me actually Saul, the one who was opposed to God's purposes through David, the anointed one, the one who would continually harass and assault David and his people. And these people, what have I done? Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? At this point, Saul, that we know of, has not been doing any persecuting of Jesus himself, So what does that mean? Saul's head and heart must have been swimming. There's no shortage of New Testament scholars who think that Paul's later theology of union with Christ come from right here in this moment, this statement of Jesus, that when a person comes to faith in Christ for salvation, that person becomes united to Christ, one with him. His obedience and righteousness in his life now becomes my obedience and righteousness, even though I did not live it. That my death and my sin is so united to his work on the cross as my substitute that it then gets taken from me to him. That his resurrection power of new creation and new kingdom and of a new age becomes my resurrection power as I am resurrected with him. Paul will twice later talk about Jesus as the second Adam. And I think, I think we can tend toward thinking about Jesus as like this second Adam in that, he's like the obedient Adam that, that succeeded where the first disobedient Adam failed. And that's true. But the risen Jesus is also the very first man of an entirely new created order. A new creation. A new age, not of sin and death, but of righteousness and life that we then, by faith, are united to. And the Christian becomes so closely knit into who Jesus is, Paul will use the phrase in Christ over 200 times in his writings. 
We become so closely knit to who Jesus is that it becomes difficult to say where Jesus ends and his people begin. At where Matt or Skylar or Liz, where they end, where I begin, where they begin, where Jesus ends, I don't know. It's hard to say. This is union with Christ, being identified with him and becoming more and more like him, being the branches to his vine, being filled and being given life through the Holy Spirit sap. Union with Christ. And in five seconds, Saul realizes all of it. Not in like a fully fleshed out theology, but that to persecute Jesus' people is to persecute Jesus himself. And he must drop the letters. He must drop the letters to the synagogues at Damascus. And some of us need to, like Saul, and like the Ethiopian last week in Acts 8, read and hear of these dynamic characters who, when confronted with the risen Christ, change. Drop the habits of the old life. Drop the old life together. The Bible word for that is to repent, to turn directions, to follow Christ instead of following what you think is right, to turn from sin and self, and by grace now following him and living for his kingdom and not yours, not perfectly, but by his grace and following him. The trajectory, the overall trajectory of your life changes. Saul had all sorts of assumptions about what he thought the kingdom of God was about. And then Jesus spoke. Even we Christians who are united to Christ can still allow our assumptions to drive the horse or drive the chariot of our lives down the road instead of allowing the glory of Christ to drive us in the direction that he wants us to go. And so where in your life are you tempted toward your own inclinations or fears that are driving, are pointing, are moving the trajectory of your life, toward thinking that we Christians, we need to throw our hopes into getting the right politicians or the right policies in place, and yet Jesus has spoken, and he has said, my kingdom is not of this world. And Paul would later say, my citizenship is in heaven. Perhaps we are tempted toward fear of the wrong politicians or the wrong policies. And yet Jesus has spoken and he has said, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Paul would later tell us to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. But the assumption being that it is possible, if not likely, that we will not be able to live peaceful and dignified lives. So pray for it, it's not a given. Are you tempted toward thinking that what God cares about most is your action for him, your zeal, your obedience, your passion in fulfilling his purposes on this earth, rather than your union with Christ that then produces these kinds of actions and obedience, that the risen Lord who has called you by name, name has heaped upon you grace upon grace upon grace upon grace through your weakness not through your accomplishments. Or, on the flip side of your zeal for Christ, perhaps you're tempted toward thinking that now that Jesus has called you by name, your following him actually doesn't matter all that much. Rather than your union with Christ, you're mostly comfortable with just following him when you feel like it, or in ways that you agree with, 
But Saul, get this, Saul is about to be blind for three days. He's about to not eat or drink. He cannot see. He's in the darkness, perhaps sharing in Jesus' darkness, darkness of the tomb for three days. And then he'll be baptized. He will come out on the other side through death and through resurrection. And so union with Christ means union with Christ in all of us. There's an old story of when the, the Texan general, Sam Houston, became a Christian. Uh, he was walking down to the river with the pastor to be baptized, and he took out his pocket watch and handed it to one of his friends so that it might not get wet. And the pastor said, well, you better hand him your wallet too. And he says, no, I believe not, pastor. I'm afraid it needs to be baptized as well. Sam Houston, I think, had a really good understanding of union with Christ. That our wallets, our houses, our jobs, our comforts, our dreams, our sexuality, all of it in union with Jesus goes into the tomb and comes out on the other side with resurrection power. When Jesus speaks, when he confronts, and then when he gives deeper spiritual sight so that we might see the world as it really is not as we thought it is, or think that it is. And yet, Jesus isn't quite done with Saul yet, is he? He tells Saul to rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. Jesus has not merely appeared to Saul that he might get the warm spiritual fuzzies, that he might make a warm and cozy Instagram post about his encounter with Jesus that morning. Jesus hasn't appeared just to save him, and yet he has. He has a job for him, but it will be a job that requires faith. He doesn't just appear to Paul, Saul. He doesn't just appear to him, and then just now everything is great. Saul must walk forward in faith. He doesn't spell out every direction or outline every step of the way. He just says, keep moving. Keep moving in the direction that you're going, and I will, essentially, I will be with you. Saul was walking in the direction that he thought was right. And ironically, Jesus keeps him walking in that same geographic direction. Only Saul's entire purpose for the trip, in fact, his entire purpose for living, has been reversed. Saul will actually still be a leader of God's people, as he was before. He will still be a missionary going down many roads with many letters as he was before. Only now he will be doing all these things with a vision of the risen Christ, which changes everything. Now, as we'll see, Saul will be given a very specific job, the role of an apostle that you and I have not been given. And yet, when we come to Christ, most of the time, while there is a trajectory of life change, where there is a moment of turning of repentance, most of the time, God will actually keep us moving in the same vocational direction in which we were heading before. Not always, but just with a vision of the risen Christ. And so, be a doctor or a pharmacist, but be a doctor or a pharmacist with a vision of the risen Christ. Keep being a welder or a barista, but do so as a resurrected welder or barista. Keep making food or caring for children. Keep being a teacher or being a student. 
in advertising or in serving in the military. Keep building this city in construction, in plumbing or politics. Do it all. Christian, in your union with Christ, you have been brought from death to life. So whatever you do, whether eating or drinking, do it all to the glory of Christ, who has confronted you with his reality, who has confronted your sin and has called you to life through him. Now, there is plenty more to say about Saul, including, wait a minute, did, did his name just change from Saul to Paul? Uh, we'll get to that next week and really throughout the rest of the book of Acts as Saul will become one of the most important uh, characters as he is doing the acts of Jesus amongst the Medi- around the Mediterranean world. But while Saul's conversion, while Saul's reversal is one of the most famous reversals, not only in the Bible, but in, in fact all of literary history, the second half of our text has an equally powerful, though often overlooked, reversal. The reversal of Ananias. So secondly, Now, what's really interesting and honestly a little confusing about Saul's conversion in Acts 9 is when did Saul actually get converted? When when is he born again? He is confronted with the risen Christ on the road and there is no turning back from that. He follows Jesus' commands in faith to continue to Damascus and he's fasting as a result of this encounter. But really, he's just been given some commands to just go find the guy which just reemphasizes the same thing that we saw last week with Philip and the Ethiopian. Last week we thought about, wouldn't it have just been a lot easier instead of the angel of the Lord coming to Philip and telling him to go find this Ethiopian guy and then describing what's going on in Isaiah 53, wouldn't it have saved everybody a lot of time for the angel just to go explain Isaiah 53 to this Ethiopian guy? Couldn't, in the same way here, couldn't have Jesus just explained the entire scriptures to, to Saul here on the road, telling him everything that he needed for life and godliness? Like this whole go find this guy with scales and blindness like, seems like a, a bit of a waste of time. But Jesus loves to work through his people. And he loves to communicate the reality of the gospel through his people, which seems to validate things that are happening in the Muslim world over the past 15 years or so. We've heard personal stories from many of our workers on this wall, as well as many blogs and reports from other missions agencies that Muslims are increasingly having dreams in which an angel or even the Lord Jesus himself appears to them. Nearly always after speaking some word of scripture that these Muslim folks may have never read in their lives, they are then given instructions to go find a Christian, perhaps with specific instructions on where they might find a Christian in their town. So it's not that these people are having dreams and then waking up as Christians, but they are having these dreams to then go hear the gospel, to go meet Christians, and then then they are becoming Christians. Dreams can be untrustworthy, These visions can be untrustworthy, but verifying and guiding them with the faith handed down once and for all through the apostles, now we're cooking. And Jesus seems to love doing this, to work in and through his people. Like we thought through last week, when we open our mouths and proclaim the excellencies of our risen Christ. And that's exactly what happens here. Only, this isn't like the mailman ringing your doorbell and asking you, hey, can you tell me about Jesus? 
It's more like Osama bin Laden ringing your your doorbell. Someone that you're afraid of, like Jean Valjean having Javert knock on his door, or living in the rebel base and Darth Vader shows up. Terror. There's a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. Jesus appears to him as well. And Jesus appears to him and tells him, not that Saul is going to come ring his doorbell, but go find him. He'll be on this street praying, go find him. And Ananias' response, I don't think, is sinless faithlessness, but it's kind of like when Mary responded to the angel. When the angel told her that she would become pregnant even though she had never been with a man, she just asked, how can this be? I don't understand. This doesn't make any sense. And so Ananias seemingly asked Jesus to clarify, like, hold on, Uh, please explain. I've heard about this guy. He really is Darth Vader. He is coming to seek and destroy, to kill. News has traveled, and Ananias knows about what Saul had done to the church in Jerusalem, and that he is coming here, what he will do here in Damascus, and that he had been given unrestrained authority from the temple to arrest any associated with Jesus. And so, I think justifiably, Ananias is confused. He is even perhaps suspicious of what Jesus has asked him to do. Maybe these commands, maybe what Jesus has asked of him is impossible. But Jesus doesn't rebuke Ananias. He doesn't call him you of little faith like he often does with his disciples. He tells him in verse 15, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so in divine humor and irony, Jesus tells Ananias that he is going to use the super Jew of all super Jews. He is going to use the Pharisee whose very reason for living was to keep himself and his people pure from the Gentile world. He's going to use that guy to go to the Gentile world. He would now be Jesus' chosen instrument to bring the gospel not just to the children of Israel, but to the Gentile world and to their kings. He will be an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. And apparently, in that moment, that's all Ananias needs to hear. He reverses from his suspicions, and he trusts Jesus. He goes out to find Saul. But let's not pretend that there's likely not some level of fear left for him. This was totally an act of faith to go out and find Darth Vader and welcome him. This is an act of faith. Like maybe the vision that I just woke up from in which this, I think that was Jesus, maybe it wasn't real. Maybe Saul's just pretending. Maybe he's like a double agent or something. But Ananias comes to him. He places his hands on him, and he calls him brother. Brother Saul. Now, maybe Darth Vader isn't the best analogy here. Darth Vader, of course, is a fictional character. Osama bin Laden is both dead and really the the likelihood of us ever encountering someone that, in our own minds, evil, 
is unlikely. So instead, who is someone that if Jesus came to you to welcome, to love, that would cause you to recoil a bit, that would cause you to be a bit suspicious? What if God was calling you to welcome city or state politicians whom have been frustrating you? What if he was calling you to welcome in Christian unity President Trump? Or maybe if you're on the other end of the political spectrum to someone like Nancy Pelosi or someone that you think of as your political enemy? Who is the person on social media that you follow that every time they post, instead of just like unfollowing them to cultivate more joy in your life, but you still follow them for the, you kind of love the anger that it elicits in you. What, if that person was Jesus was calling you to love and welcome that person? Or which pundit out there, either a political pundit or the, of the so-called left or the right, or like some pastor or theological blogger out there, who every time you see one of their posts or one of their comments shared on social media, it just makes your blood pressure go up a little bit. What if that social media friend or that pundit came to you seeking unity in Christ? What about the other nameless people out there, but the ones that you have put a label on? It allows you to think of them as some sort of other so that you don't actually have to think about loving them as an individual human with God's image. Maybe you are frustrated or angered by the liberals or by the conservatives, or maybe you are frustrated and angered by critical race theorists or Karens. Maybe you are angered by the very wealthy or the very poor. Jesus has called us to love all through our suspicions, through our fears, over and over and over again, Jesus and his apostles emphasize that it is very, very easy to love people whom you agree with. Everybody does that. You don't need Jesus or the Holy Spirit to love people whom you agree with. But those who are united to Jesus in his kind of crucified love are called to even love our enemies, not theoretical enemies, but real people with faces and with names, with stories with their own fears and insecurities. Now, there are real and actual evils out there that Christians should not hesitate to condemn. The kind of Christian nationalism on display across our country of trying to claim our governmental institutions for Jesus by using whatever means necessary, even violence, is both a misunderstanding of the Bible's teachings of earthly governments and a misunderstanding of Jesus as our king, and it is idolatry. And yet, what if Viking horn, red blue face guy from the Capitol insurrection, what if that guy, after he gets out of jail, what if that guy came to you and said, I'm so sorry, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to find out about Jesus, uh, what do I need to do? Our society today has a heightened sense of justice and morality. Our society today is telling us that if you speak or even think wrongly, you must be punished. Not corrected or persuaded, but exiled. It is all justice, and it is no grace, and it is not the way of Christ our King. 
what if these theoretical or very real enemies out there came to us? What if, more likely, Jesus is sending us out to our very real or even theoretical enemies out there? Christ has come to make a new creation, a new humanity, a people of unity, of grace, of kindness and forgiveness, of meekness. What a fruit of the Spirit that is meekness, not weakness, but restrained power shown through meekness. That'll speak to the world. And so of Ananias and Saul welcoming one another and calling each other brother through this supernatural love and grace, Saul is He's reborn out of three days of darkness. The scales fall from his eyes and he can see. Not just now, he can like physically make out the biological outline of this person, Ananias, but now he can see him, not as an enemy, but as a brother. He can see not Jesus of Nazareth as like this failed sectarian leader, this blaspheming, false worshiping, false worshiper, but he can see him actually as the Lord of heaven and earth. He can see. And so the transformation of the world began. Saul can now see. The transformation of the entire world began as it began to pour out of an empty tomb in Jerusalem on Easter Sunday. And now, as Jesus has given him sight, now Saul can see the transformed world as it really is. The world with Christ as its king. And the purpose of Saul's life now becomes and revolves around the crucified and resurrected king and knowing him and enjoying him forever. And that is what Christ has created you for as well, to know him, to enjoy him forever, to worship him, to follow him in joy and in obedience. Now there is much more about Saul much more about the rest of his time in Damascus next week. But how does meeting Jesus today, how being confronted with his resurrection and with his kingdom, how does that transform the rest of your day today, the rest of your evening, the rest of your night, the rest of this week, the rest of 2021, the rest of your life? Let's pray now that we might see Christ clearly, that we might see and have a vision of him for the rest of our lives, and that by doing so, he might transform us. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us by your Spirit to fix our eyes on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Help us to see you. Help us to know that you are more glorious than all of these lesser gods, these lesser kingdoms, much more glorious than ourselves. Might your glory just eclipse all of these lesser things just pushing out and blinding out all of the ways in which we thought we're right, but we're actually just about ourselves. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you are so patient, that you are so kind, that you are so gracious, that in our weakness, in our own attempts to keep turning back to our own way, you will hold us fast and you will not, you will not allow us to love ourselves more than yourself. But God, we pray that by your spirit that you would continue your steadfast and faithful love to us in that way. 
Help us to persevere and to the end. Help our church, help the church, help Christians in this world to love one another, to love their enemy, to love the world around us. God, we pray that the world might know that we belong to you by our love for one another, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.